In this week's show, we are discussing sexual assault of minors. Uh, in the news, there's been the, the story about Roy Moore, the Alabama judge who he dated teenagers at age 30. And when people started defending him and saying that, it really set some alarms for me regarding, you know, is it true that that in, in some cultures that's okay, that it's really not that big deal? So I wanted to talk to an expert regarding that. Um, we're in Texas, so the laws are different here than in other states. But I think that the overall picture is not what some people are trying to portray. So we have today Ms. Candace Holloway from the Houston Area Women's Center. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get involved uh, supporting minors in this type of work? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for having me. So I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm also, uh, my position here at the Houston Area Women's Center, or HAWC, is the Senior uh, Sexual Assault Services Counselor, and in that position I see uh, men, women, you know, minors uh, who have experienced sexual violence throughout their lifetime. So this could be uh, someone who's now an adult who was sexually abused uh, or molested or assaulted as a child, and those have like different legal definitions. Uh, it could be someone who was sex trafficked. It could be someone who was assaulted as an adult. Uh, there's a lot of different um, different things, you know, a number of sins that this covers. But I first got involved in the work, um, I guess, technically my whole life because I grew up with, um, you know, women and like relatives and that sort of thing who had been assaulted, who had been sexually abused as children, and so it was uh, something they didn't necessarily talk about, but something that was definitely known. And then as I got older, I started to realize a lot of my friends also had been um, had had been victimized, had been or were survivors of sexual violence. I really decided to start this work specifically in grad school. I uh, went to grad school for clinical psychology to become a counselor, and this really was just like where my where my heart was, where my passion is. Wonderful. It's great to have you on the show. So when this came came up, and I know there's, there's a lot of stuff on the news right now of uh, inappropriate relationships, of harassment, of um, people being touched without their consent. But in particular, in this case, they're talking about a grown man uh, targeting um, adolescents uh, going to malls and, and high schools and in parks and talking to to young ladies, and then when they asked him if he had actually done it, he said, "Well, I can't remember, but if I did, I always ask permission from from the mom or the parents." Uh, so, what is the the law regarding relationships between children and adults? And even if it is consensual and approved by a parent, is there a law against someone pursuing relationships with underage women? Absolutely. So you mentioned in there if it's consensual. That's interesting because legally you have to have reached the age of consent in order to consent. So even if someone, even if you have someone who let's say is uh, 14, for instance, like the like one of the uh, women who's come forward about Roy Moore, he was. She said he was 32 and she was 14. Even if she had been saying, you know, yes, this is awesome. I, you know, I want to have this relationship with this man. I, you know, want this relationship to be sexual, you know, all of that stuff. What we usually, you know, look at, right, in society is consenting. She still legally is not able to consent. Uh, so I believe in Alabama where this happened, the, uh, just here, you know, now, as back then, the age of consent was 16. And so she was 14, so she did not meet the age of consent. So no matter what, she would not be able to have consensual sex. Uh, in Texas, the the age of consent is 17, so it's a year older. Uh, but still, she would not be able to to consent. As far as well, let's say that it's in a um, rural area, and groups like the Amish um, have different mores than than modern day Americans. Are they held liable to the same stuff? Like, what if the parents say that it's okay for this person to start a relationship or even marry an adult male, is that acceptable? Short answer, no. Uh, longer answer, it doesn't matter. If, if you're in the U.S., it does not matter if you're Amish, if you're Mormon, if you, any, any religion or any cultural background, 
the the law is the law. It's still the same. As far as approval from a parent, that gets a little tricky because legally it, it doesn't matter. Legally, it, and it didn't matter at, at that point, I think it was like in 79, I think when this happened, um, with, with more and more specifically, it doesn't matter. If, if I'm the parent of, let's say, a 14 or 15-year-old child, because these are children, a 14 or 15-year-old child, and a 32, 42, 52, however, you know, old man uh, asks my permission to, quote-unquote, date my daughter or have a sexual relationship with my daughter or what have you, it's still not okay even if I okay it, even if I as the parent say, yeah, you seem like a good guy, um, this, you know, I support this, this seems okay, da-da-da, it still doesn't matter legally. In the court of law, that doesn't hold any any weight because I cannot consent for my child. The consent just isn't isn't there, legally speaking. Culturally speaking, that's where it gets sort of tricky because people have different, unfortunately, they have different ideas about this, that, uh, well, it's okay because, you know, I've heard it's okay because, like, Joseph and Mary, or it's okay because, you know, this used to be okay, and if we look at Romeo and Juliet and all of that stuff, um, that may be true that it was acceptable by maybe, like, the laws at that time or the quote-unquote standards of that time, but that's not where we are now. We've evolved a lot from that and we understand, uh, most of us do, understand the damage that that sexual abuse has on kids, you know, when they're younger, no matter if they think that they want that at the time, no matter if the guy is very nice and and isn't, uh, it's not quote-unquote forcible rape. It's not what we think of as a, you know, as rape, someone coming out of the bushes and and that sort of thing. Um, there's in, in childhood sexual abuse cases, there's this concept called grooming where a perpetrator will spend time, sometimes years, grooming a child, like getting closer, getting in with the family, you know, setting themselves up to look like the good guy, like a trusted sort of uncle figure or, or even father figure. And slowly they, you know, become more and more um, aggressive. I suppose in their in their pursuit in their in their pursuit of a sexual relationship with the child. So it's that absolutely has long lasting damage for the for the victim for the survivor um, of that sort of thing. So it doesn't it it doesn't matter. Short you know short answer it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's still not okay. Well, you answered my second question regarding ancient cultures, and that's been one of the examples that's been used that you know, in biblical times or in other cultures, um, older men married younger women, and, you know, there is no criminality in that. Uh, but it seems like, you know, they're, they're twisting the information f- to fit their purposes. But um, you mentioned the, the Romeo and Juliet uh, scenario. I've heard it said that um, when kids are, are both underage and they're having sexual relations, that there's some law related to Romeo and Juliet. How does that law work? Yeah, so uh, it's yeah, it's appropriately named the Romeo and Je- Juliet Law is the kind of commonplace name for it. Uh, it's a little different state by state, but I can tell you what it is in Texas. The age of consent is 17, but if you have someone who is under 17, so 16 or younger, down to age 14, I think, so someone who's 14, 15, or 16 years old, and they're having a sexual relationship with someone who is older than 17. So let's say they're having sex, you have a 16-year-old who's having sex with an 18-year-old. That's quote-unquote okay. That's not, that the 18-year-old cannot be charged with statutory rape. Um, they can be charged with sexual for the, for the 16-year-old. They cannot be charged because of the Romeo and Juliet law, which says that if one of the people, one or both of the, of the people involved is a minor, as long as the, person, the youngest person is older than, four, it's 14 or older, and there's not, more than a three-year difference between the two individuals. So you could have a 14 and a 17-year-old. Um, you could have a 15 and an 18-year-old and a 16 and a 19-year-old. But any differences more than that are not, you know, are not okay. It also covers if you have, like, a 15-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old and a 16, you know, 
they can be the, the same age. They can both be minors, and it's not necessarily healthy, uh, but it's not statutory rape. So can you explain for us a little bit more about the statutory rape law and how does it work in Texas and possibly in other states? So, yeah, it's when someone who is over age 17, in, in Texas it's over age 17, and in other states it, it's over whatever their age of consent is, so either 16, 17, or 18, um, has sexual, like, quote-unquote, relations with someone who is a minor. And so, uh, you know, I said, like, there's different... Like, molestation is not necessarily the same thing as sexual abuse. It's not the same thing necessarily as sexual assault. There are different um, types, quote-unquote, types of, of statutory rape and that come with different penalties. So, like, the basic, the main umbrella term here is, is statutory rape. And so that is sexual penetration or contact between someone who's above the age of consent and then someone who's younger than the age of consent, keeping in mind that it's, it has to be more than three years age difference with the Romeo and Juliet law. So if a 32-year-old and a 14-year-old is absolutely considered statutory rape, a 32-year-old and a 16-year-old is, is considered statutory rape. Anyone over the age of, ooh, let me do some quick math, uh, in Texas, anyone who's 21 or older who is having sex or sexual contact, penetration or contact, with someone under 17 is 17 or younger is, uh, is committing statutory rape. Sorry, under 17, 16 or younger. And just like any law, just because you weren't aware of the person's age or you know, if you're driving down the street and you don't know that it is 45 and you're going 80, you're still liable to the law, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't matter if there was a, a, a quote-unquote relationship before. It doesn't matter, oh, I didn't know the age of consent. It doesn't. She lied about her age. We hear that a lot. Um, you know, perpetrators claiming that the, that the survivor has lied about their age or, or really common is, well, they looked older. They looked or they acted older. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't matter. It's what's on the, on the birth certificate. And who's responsible for bringing charges against the perpetrator? And are the parents liable for not protecting the child from an abuser? So, for instance, like if the child is, is underage and, and it's like it qualifies as statutory rape? Okay. So, let me, I guess we'll start with who, who brings charges. So, if, whenever the child tells someone, or if the child uh, tells someone, because there's a lot of children who don't, you know, maybe realize what it is or realize the severity or they're confused about a lot of different reasons that they may not say anything to anyone. Uh, but if they do, then that's considered an outcry. And if it's an adult that they are, that they make the outcry to, in most cases that, that adult is required by law to make a, to report it. So either to report it to police or to report it to CPS. And if it's reported to CPS, it, like it will get reported uh, to the police, to the proper jurisdiction. They are a mandatory reporter. If that person does not do that, they are liable for, ooh, I want to say a year, up to a year in jail, I think. Uh, but they, they do suffer, you know, they, they are able, able to suffer consequences for that. They, they may face consequences, legal punishment for that. Uh, but let's say the, the parents say, the parents believe the child and like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. You know, they report it and all of that. Then the parents, can decide if they want to, like, they can say, yes, we want to press charges. Yes, this is a, you know, this was stepdad, this was uncle, this was grandmother, whoever the, the perpetrator was, uh, this was a stranger, what have you. We would like to press charges. But the ultimate decision comes up to, it's left to the city or the state. So in Houston, the DA's office is the one that makes that determination in conjunction with, with the police department or the sheriff's office. The police say, hey, here's the evidence that we, that we have. Uh, we think we have a good case or we don't think we have a good case, but here's, here's what we've got from our investigation. And the DA's office decides whether or not to pursue the case. So I can say nationwide, out of every thousand cases that are reported, of, of any type of sexual assault, about, I want to say, 13 of those actually get accepted for the, like, by the DA to, like, they begin to press charges. They don't really, 
accept anything other than like physical proof like and then now you have cases where they're like 20 30 years later um in legal terms like is there any way to even pursue the, those type of cases it depends it there is a statute of limitations uh for for sex crimes um most so let's say it's sexual assault um on someone like someone was an adult we're kind of taking children out of this someone was sexually assaulted as an adult by another adult uh they have 10 years with with very few exceptions they have 10 years uh to report it not 10 years for that person to be charged necessarily but for them to make a police report so we sometimes have survivors here who uh you know make reports 8 9 years after the fact because they've just been so traumatized by it and and they've been so ashamed to even talk about it uh so they haven't made any reports they're afraid the police won't believe them or you know all sorts of things afraid other people might find out so it's it's typically 10 years the exception for that has to do with dna evidence like if there was dna evidence at the time that wasn't tested or it, it or they tested and it didn't match the victim like there's you know some exceptions there but generally it's 10 years when children are involved the it, the norm is that there is no statutory there is no limit and this is in texas um so it's a little more more complicated than that like you can make the report at at any age at any time but it's not there's, so there's not a statute of limitations for making the report but it's a statute of limitations that you know making the report and having anything possibly happen after does that make sense is but but again is it because there's just lack of interest in pursuing these cases that that such a small percentage actually get even uh, processed uh, what's happening that that's not being taken seriously and is not being addressed as it should be yeah yeah to where like 1.3 you know percent of cases actually get referred to a prosecutor uh that has to do with a lot of things it it can be like quote unquote lack of evidence um it's a he said she said we hear that a lot uh the person is denying it no i didn't touch her or no it was consensual or no da 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 and there's no physical proof uh, a lot of them get dismissed for that reason they'll get dismissed sometimes because the police um and not to rag on the police but the police or the prosecutors don't believe that it happened uh they like the main reason is that the prosecution feels for whatever reason that they're not able to prove guilt that they feel that they won't win the case and so they do not take the case there's a lack of evidence um sometimes they're unable to identify the perpetrator if it was a stranger they you know the person may not be like they they may not know the name of the person or or the person may have lied about their name or their age or what have you uh, sometimes the person the perpetrator can't be found they've escaped to another country or or they've gone you know they've just gone AWOL um sometimes it's it's because they're overworked it's because there's so many of these cases coming in and there's not enough people to do to investigate and and to investigate quickly enough to get that to get that evidence uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of different reasons but you know overall the system is there's some flaws in the system that that don't work in the favor of the survivors has there been any improvement in using um counselors as part of the evidence like if a counselor has been treating someone for the trauma uh that they've experienced from the sexual assault is that can that be used as proof or as evidence to help the case yes yes and no uh it can be like sometimes we're called on as either expert witnesses um on on trauma or on sexual violence sometimes we can be subpoenaed and so they want to see our notes and see kind of okay is, did the did the person the child whoever you know tell you the counselor the same things that that they that they said happened you know or you know did they is the story different they're looking for if the story's changed or if um if they say oh this didn't actually happen those they can subpoena those records we can't just hand those over but there's a new law in Texas very very recent i want to say as of september that says that there's this there's counselor client privilege 
counselor ad, or sorry advocate client privilege. So so we serve as counselors and advocates, and so there are certain things that if the client tells us that we don't have to report uh, to the court, and you know we we do our best to. I'll, I'll speak for myself. I do my best not to incriminate my clients and not to like make their make it harder for their for their you know charges to be pressed or for uh, their case to go to court and and for them to get justice. But I, I would work in conjunction with the client. To, okay, what what do you feel comfortable with me, you know, disclosing to to the lawyer? Um, and it's and a subpoena isn't necessarily the way that, that we always want to go. It might be better instead of having the, you know, my notes or my, my testimony subpoenaed, it might be better for me to just be like a witness for, for the prosecution. So there's different ways to, to go about it. But we, we can serve as, you know, in some capacity as, as witnesses um, to yes, like these are, these are, the real trauma reactions that this person is, you know, is having. And it's normal for someone, you know, not to come out and, and call police right away. Or it's normal for someone who's experienced trauma for their memory uh, to be impaired. Like these, these, you know, common trauma reactions, we're able to get up there and, and say, hey, these, this is actually, like, legitimate. This is real. This is what happens. And, and so in that way, we're able to kind of minimize doubt and, and bolster the the testimony of the of the client of the survivor. Um, regarding counseling now, in the case of a perpetrator, uh, my wife and I would debate because I'm a chaplain, she's a social worker, and she was saying that client confidentiality goes really far. That if if one of her clients told her that that he had abused a bunch of people, that she did not have the like she could lose her license if she were to um, report him to the police. And then I I don't have a license, and I'm not a priest, because the priests have a similar thing with not telling people's sins to the authorities. I actually feel that it, it is my duty to report uh, stuff that someone has told me that affects other people, because if it goes unreported, then the victims never get any justice. Um, is that the same case for a social worker and a counselor? Like, if you had a, a patient that share with you years of abusing other people, um, would you just not say anything? Would you try to convince the person to turn themselves in? What What is required or even ethical for a counselor regarding dealing with a perpetrator? Yeah, so it gets complicated. Uh, it has to do with who the individual is, like if it's a counselor, if it's a, if it's a licensed professional counselor, if it's a social worker, like what licensing board and what state they're in as well. So there's, um, there's this court case in California called, it was uh, Tarasoff versus like the university of California, I think. Um, and there was a, a young woman who was murdered by someone and the, and the person who murdered her had told his therapist like, Hey, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to kill this person. She had reason, the therapist had reason to believe that, Hey, this is going to happen. Um, and they didn't do anything. And so the woman ended up being, being killed. And so after that, they, they had this court case that said that counselors, therapists, like mental health professionals in, in general have a, a duty to warn. So a duty to warn means that, the therapy, the mental health professional can breach confidentiality in order to inform third parties or, or other authorities, hey, this, this, you know, my client said this, they're posing a threat to themselves or to someone else. So if they talk about a serious plan to hurt or kill themselves or someone else, then we have a duty to, a duty to one. Uh, then there's, and, and so that, that is kind of the, the gold standard. However, it also introduced this thing called the duty to protect. So the duty to protect is in, I believe, in California, but it is not the duty. We do not have duty to protect in Texas. And what duty to protect says is that, let's say I have a client who said, oh, I'm, I've abused these people or I'm going to kill these people or what have you. There's harm coming to someone. That it's my, my duty not just to warn the you know, proper authorities, but to do everything that I can to protect. Oh, sorry to protect everyone, you know, that might be harmed or, or is being harmed, you know, to let them know, hey, this is, you know, you get out of Dodge. 
you know, this isn't this, you know, so-and-so said this, that they're, that they're looking for you. And, you know, it's in order to protect that person. We don't have that in Texas. We just have the duty to warn. So I'm, I'm obligated. My license tells me I have to, if the person presents a, a current danger to themselves or someone else, uh, in most cases, I have to alert, you know, HPD or a hospital if it's, you know, if it's suicide that they're intending. But is it only only for murder and suicide, or could it be for they've abused people in the past and I need to um, warn the authorities so they don't abuse someone in the future, or can I reveal that they abuse certain people and nobody knows? Like, so it doesn't have to. It doesn't say it has to be like just murder or or killing someone or threatening to kill someone. It's any if they pose any threat of harm to themselves or to someone else. And so if it's that they've committed, um, you know, these crimes against children in the past, they sexually abused kids or abused kids at all in the past, it depends on if they're like, yeah, you know, I really, oh, I miss those times. I want to like, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, doing so I never stopped abusing kids. Then that's okay. Yeah. I've, I've got a duty to warn because this person is, is, posing a very serious threat uh, to other people. If, on the other hand, it's, you know, I, I abused three children or, you know, however many children, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and I feel really terrible about it, and, and that's why I need counseling because I just, you know, I can't live with myself and da-da-da. We don't have a duty to warn it because they they aren't, the one, the the, the people that they abused aren't children anymore, but more importantly than that, they're not presenting a, a present, you know, threat to anyone. So we can, we can actually lose our license uh, as mental health professionals if we, if we breach confidentiality, you know, for that reason, or if we breach confidentiality for, for other reasons that don't have to do with, um, you know, legal requirements to do so, or that someone's posing a threat to themselves or someone else. So it's, it's not perfect. <laughs> Um, do you believe that the sentencing for molestation of minors is appropriate for the crime at this time? Whew. Uh, I be- yes. However, I don't believe that it's enforced as much as it, as it should be. Um, so out of those, for instance, out of the, the 13, uh, you know, 1.3% who, you know, whose cases actually, that they've reported, whose cases actually get picked up, and prosecuted, only about half of those are cases in which the perpetrator serves any time, you know, is convicted and serves uh, punishment or even, you know, even a, a punishment of uh, like probation or anything at all. So it, it, the system actually, you know, absolutely needs to be reworked in order to, you know, so that, so that people are actually, perpetrators are actually sentenced and they're not, you know, let off the hook. They're not out there free to, to do this to other people. Uh, as far as the actual sentencing, when they are sentenced, it depends, again, on, on what the charge is. But uh, for aggravated sexual assault of a child, so that's sexual penetration um, for someone who's, who's an adult or on someone who's younger than 14, then that's a first-degree felony, and that uh, prison, you know, that's facing a prison sentence of 5 to 99 years and also a fine as much as I think, I think up to $10,000. So I think that, I think that five years in prison is a little lax, honestly. Uh, 99 years in prison sounds, sounds good to me. Um, and it, you know, it depends on the context and everything as to, you know, if, if that sentence is actually going to be delivered, you know, as 99 years. But I, I don't have a problem so much with the punishment as I do with the lack of enforcement, the lack of sentencing. And I'm sorry to take so much of your time, but are you familiar with the case of um, of uh, Mich- Michigan Judge um, Gregory Ross that gave custody to uh, a rapist of the child that uh, he bore with an underage young lady? Yes. Unfortunately, yes, I am. And, and what I read is that he had um, abused several uh, young ladies and then somehow he kept on getting off or, or getting very short sentences. Is that just like the biggest example of, of sexism and lack of care for women and children that there is? I mean, I don't know if it's the biggest example, but it's definitely a, a pretty good one. It's up there. It's, it's very common that 
you know, there are reports made and that it's never pursued. And so the, you know, most, most perpetrators are multiple offenders. They, it's not a one and done, you know, situation that they tripped, fell and accidentally, you know, molested someone. This is something that they, that they have a habit of doing. And so if they, you know, lose access to one victim, um, through, you know, whatever, whatever means, then they quickly work to find other victims. And so it's, I mean, that's, that's definitely up there as a, as an example, um, of, yeah, some, some rape culture and some sexism at work. I would say another really great one recently is, uh, Brock Turner over at Stanford, the swimmer who was given, I think, six months probation and served three or six months jail time and served three, uh, and then was on probation for sexually being caught sexually assaulting a woman behind a dumpster. And he was caught by two uh, male, I want to say, international students. And I think that that I don't know that he would have been charged, you know, at all if it hadn't been that two men had literally caught him in the act. Uh, but even so, he was only, like, literally caught in the act, and he was uh, he only served three months in jail. So I think that's actually, that's a really good example, too. Well, it's a, it's a very troubling um, situation, but um, I want to thank you for informing our audience about the specifics. Uh, it seems like everything is politicized nowadays and is becoming um, all jumbled up together, like all the different cases and different accusations and things that all um, in, and I don't want for it to become kind of like people become jaded with, with all this information. I want people to know the specifics and how things work. So then um, they're, they're more educated about how to support survivors and also how to spot uh, situations that are um, you know, criminal or problematic. Um, just a quick comment. Um, a friend of mine who's a, who, who was a police officer, he told me that a lot of times they weren't trained on the actual laws that they were told, you know a crime when you see it. So have you experienced that, that, um, that law enforcement has to be trained on their own uh, laws so then they can actually enforce the laws? Yes, um, I am. Unfortunately, I am, I am familiar with that, and especially with the, the phrase, you know you'll, know, you'll know it when you see it. Like it's, you know, crimes are very obvious. Some are. Someone's holding someone up with a gun. Yeah, it's, it's fairly obvious. But there's a lot of crimes that aren't as obvious, and sexual violence is often one of those. Um, things, you know, perpetrators will work really hard to make everything look okay, to make it look mm -hmm. acceptable, to explain it away. Uh, they'll have a dual persona. They'll be a really respected person, usually a, a person in some position of authority, and they make, you know, make sure that they have a, a near airtight alibi over here. But they've, they've, you know, they're, they go to church or, you know, they're such a good guy. They have so many people that are going to say, oh, they're such a good guy. They could never do that. Uh, and that's, they, they create that persona so that way, you know, it looks normal. It doesn't look like a crime, you know, and, and if it comes out that there was a crime, no one, you know, people are less inclined to believe that it actually happened because, no, he's such a good guy. He's, he would never hurt a fly. Uh, so that's, I, ha I have heard of, you know, I have heard from police officers them being taught that. I do believe, however, that training is getting better. Um, I know that the Houston Area Women's Center recently, um, or I think maybe a year ago, started training um, HPD officers or HPD staff and officers on the neurobiology of trauma. So of common reactions uh, that people have, you know, to trauma in order to provide more understanding on, hey, if you're working with someone who, you know, if you're seeing someone who's saying that they were raped or saying they were in a domestic violence situation or that they were molested, any of that stuff, and, and they're behaving not in the, in the obvious way that we think of on TV, that how a, a rape survivor, quote-unquote, should act. This is why. It's because that's a, that's a myth. It's, you know, not all rape survivors are, are crying and, and just tears running down their face immediately after. Just, you know, it, some people are in shock. Some people, their memory isn't, you know, is impaired. It's, it's all different sorts of things. So I, I do believe training is getting better, uh, but it's still got a little ways to go. And this week's show, we'll be discussing the the sexual assault scandal with the Olympians. Um, lately in the news, we've been hearing a lot of about Dr. Larry Nassar and how he uh, took advantage of a lot of his patients for 
this long period of time. And we're going to go in depth in, in the, the case and how it is affecting uh, advocacy for survivors of sexual assault, especially minors, and how this is a, a breakthrough case in, in many ways. But uh, I want to know if there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. Our guest, again, is Kenneth Holloway, a licensed professional counselor who does private practice and is also a therapist for the University of Houston. So in our previous show, we talked about sexual assault of minors and um, this kind of thing that, that they were trying to make kind of fussy, like being involved um, with the permission of the parents and stuff like that. Now we're talking about a doctor, someone that us as parents would trust with the, the health of our children. And the first thing that comes to mind is that I guess you can never be too vigilant. And I also want to discuss um, urban myths, not only about stories that you hear about this happening all the time, and also how uh, should survivors um, address something like this and how should they go about reporting uh, this type of abuse. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the case? Um, I know that there was a story of one of the survivors um, studying law and gathering evidence and bringing a case against him uh, later in her life. But how did it all come to the surface? And I know there's a lot of uh, people accusing him of of molestation, sexual assault. So um, can you tell us like a short summary of uh, what happened? Yeah. So uh, Dr. Larry Nasser is or was the uh, like top Olympic or top doctor for uh, the U.S. Olympic team uh, for gymnasts. I know that's like kind of mangled, but uh, he was the go-to doctor for any you know young woman who was on the U.S. Olympic uh, gymnastics team. That's a better way to say that. And uh, this was for decades. I mean, he he was with USA Gymnastics. He was also at uh, Michigan State for a while as a as a doctor and specifically as a trainer uh so he would you know he he would give treatments specifically to quote-unquote treatments to uh gymnasts for decades he was seen as an expert uh around i'm trying to remember exactly when uh but a, a couple months back uh michaela maroney uh one of the like a former olympian and gold medalist said that she was, you know, sexually abused by him. Uh, like you said, there are, you know, there are over 150 now, like, women and girls who have come forward and said, you know, I, I too, was, was sexually abused by Dr. Larry Nasser. Uh, a lot of, you know, and from this is coming from, like, the testimony and from things that the survivors have said online and on their Twitter accounts and that sort of thing. Uh, but a lot of them didn't realize that what they had experienced was sexual abuse. They knew that it felt, it left them feeling wrong, quote-unquote, or dirty. Um, they thought something, you know, they, they were like, oh, I don't know, this doesn't feel right. Why am I, you know, why am I having nightmares? Why am I feeling shame and all of these other things? Um, but once, like, the first, you know, couple of, of young women came forward and said, hey, you know, this was not appropriate, this was sexual assault, uh, you know, it started to, to click for a, lot, for a lot more women and girls. When I worked at the Women's Center, one of the, the nurses from the forensic team, she would train us on what sexual assault was. And I remember her saying that um, it involved penetration, but it also involved, like, the purpose behind the penetration. So uh, they said that if, you know, if something happened by accident or if someone different than someone doing it for, I guess, pleasure or to humiliate the other person. So how was this... Um, perpetrator justifying the type of uh, abuse that he was committing on, on all these young ladies. That's interesting. He doesn't really have a, like a strong justification. Uh, at first he just denied it, which is what a lot of, you know, abusers and, and perpetrators will do. No, you're, you're lying or they'll minimize it. Um, they'll say, well, it didn't happen quite like that. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I believe, so there was penetration in, in a lot of the cases with, with him. And, and I want to back up a little bit and, and kind of add on to what you said about the definition of sexual assault. 
So state by state, it's a little bit different. You know, in, in Texas, it's, and I'm going to paraphrase here, it's like penetration, uh, and it doesn't have to be with a penis. It can be with uh, hands, uh, any sort of like tool, Any it could be anything. Uh, but penetration of the anus, vagina, or mouth uh, without the consent of the other person. And so that consent piece is very, very important here because when we're talking about minors, minors legally cannot give consent. And we talked a little bit last time about, you know, the Romeo and Juliet laws, and so we're going to kind of kind of push those over to the side because there are some exceptions when both people are minors or when they're close in age. But in this case, that I mean, this wasn't the case at all. He was, you know, much older. These women, possibly all of them, were underage at the time. So right there, anything sexual you know, that he does with them, any, any sort of penetration is automatically sexual assault because they, they legally cannot consent to what's going on. Um, I think what, what the nurse that you're talking about was, was getting at was the power and control issue, uh, which, you know, yeah, there's a difference between a mom changing a diaper or a dad, hell, a dad changing a diaper and, uh, you know, sexual, sexual abuse. So, Intent is, is important, but it's not necessarily required in, in the law. Does that make sense? So, so what was he doing? He was telling the parents, I need to check her sexually for medical purposes. And was he at, at times getting permission from the parents, at times just being by himself in the room? Was there ever a nurse in the room? What was going on? No. So it, it would be just, just them two. Uh, most most of the time, it would be just him, and then the gymnast. He at first he was uh, denying that he. Whenever this started coming out, he said, "I didn't, you know, I didn't even wear gloves because I I never, you know, uh, do any, you know, go essentially like go into the vagina or the anus or any of that. Like that's it's only the pelvic floor, like, and that's external. So what he's supposed to be doing is all external. Uh, the only time." That he that any that any doctor uh, any any trainer in this capacity is supposed to like there's supposed to be any penetration whatsoever is occasionally like very occasionally um, there's a there's a manipulation or a massage I'm not sure exactly the term uh, in the anus it, but it's like one finger it's it's very different from what he what he was being accused of so uh, he he said he just flat out denied and said no I didn't do that so he wasn't he wasn't getting parental permission he wasn't uh, he was just kind of like grow, like going rogue, pretty much. Uh, he said, you know, I don't like using gloves because it's easier for, you know, because I, I never do anything, you know, vaginal anyway. But also he said it's, you know, it, it's easier for him to, to provide treatment that way, you know. And so it's just another, so he had like little excuses lined up. Um, but he, he didn't, he, he didn't like, get consent, even if they weren't minors, let's say these were adults, he didn't get consent and he, and he didn't get consent from the, like from the parents either. And so anytime that a doctor is treat, there's like so many layers to this. One, anytime a doctor of any type is treating a minor, they have to, unless it's an emergency situation, like we're talking like, you know, EMS or, you know, life and death, but this, this does not qualify they have to get the permission of the parent or guardian because, again, a minor cannot consent to, to anything, to sexual activity, to medical procedures, to exams, um, anything like that. So he wasn't getting, you know, getting parental, parental consent. Um, he, you know, was – so, so that's, the, that's the first one. He didn't get consent from the parents. There's also the issue of informed consent. So – let's say he had asked the parents, because that was one of his things that he said to you, no, I got, I got consent from the parents to do this. Informed consent means the person has given you consent, the person be them uh, an adult or a parent, guardian, whatever, and, and consent to do specific things that they, you know, you've pretty much you're saying you've informed them of what's going to happen, and they've said, yeah, you know, that's, that's okay, I'm all right with that. Anything less than that is not informed consent. It is unethical. And this isn't just me saying this. This is pretty much any licensing board uh, for for any kind of healthcare. It's unethical to not give clients informed consent because otherwise you are manipulating or tricking 
them into something, even unintentionally. You know, you're you're not not being upfront. You're not being honest. Uh, I want to say he he one of his, another one of his excuses was that he if the patient stopped him, if the patient became uncomfortable at any point, he would he would stop the treatment. Like he would immediately stop. What's what's interesting with with that for me anyway is that he one uh, some of the testimony says he didn't actually actually stop when someone was like, ooh, I don't, I don't know about that, or da-da-da. But second is a lot of people who, especially, especially minors, especially kids who are, you know, sexually assaulted, don't say no. You know, we have this idea from movies and TV that everyone says, you know, is, is screaming or says no or whatever. Like I said before, a lot of these girls didn't know that it was sexual abuse. They knew it was uncomfortable and they didn't like it. But you know, they they had this mentality of, well, he's the expert. Like, what do, what do I? I don't know about like these treatments. Uh, he does. You know, I need to trust him. They were they were told, you know, implicitly and, and explicitly to trust Dr. Nasser, and so they did. So no, they're not going to say no uh, while in the moment. You know, and even if they did, even if they were to recognize that it was sexual abuse, a lot of survivors freeze. They uh, they're kind of in shock, and so. You know, it's one of those one of those responses where it's fight, fight, or freeze, and, and a lot of them freeze and would not be able to say no anyway. Uh, so each one of his excuses, you know, has just is is totally uh, it, it's just it's just inexcusable. Well, the reason that we're getting into details about it is because um, when I was in Tennessee, I heard of a story, and I don't know if it's a Facebook urban myth or what. That um, there was a dentist that uh, he would tell the parents. Um, Stay right here in the lobby. I'm going to take care of your kid. And then the kid would come out, whatever, 20, 30 minutes later, and the child was assaulted by the dentist. And to me, it's like, how how is that even possible? Like, um, you would think that at least uh, a nurse would be in the room or a tech or the parent would. Um, I know that, that people who've been raised in traditional households, they tell you that, you know, trust the police officer, trust a, a doctor, and trust, uh, I don't know, a judge or, or other people who are public servants. So maybe someone would be like, okay, well, I know he's a good guy and he's taking care of my family for a long time, so I'm just going to let them do their thing and, and sit outside and read a magazine. But uh, is that how, uh, is that even possible? Or uh, have you heard of cases of that kind where in a split second someone can do something as, as awful as that? Yes, absolutely. It doesn't take a whole lot of time, uh, unfortunately, to to sexually abuse someone. Uh, you know, the I, I am not familiar with that specific like story or, or myth or what have you, but I've I've seen clients plural who were, you know, when they were kids, for instance, this happens with adults as well. When they were kids, they were taken to um, to the doctor, you know, or they were or mom was was at the doctor's and then mom went to the bathroom or something. So they're alone in there with, with just the doctor and the doctor touches them inappropriately. Uh, it, it doesn't take, you know, very long at all. And ideally, yes, you know, there is a, another person, a third person in the room. Um, I know for a lot of gynecology offices, there's, you know, a nurse, typically a female nurse in the room, uh, that will stay kind of really her her job is to be there as a witness uh, to make sure that you know that the gynecologist doesn't say or do anything um, you know abusive or offensive or or you know wrong unprofessional um, so that ideally that's that's what happens but a lot of times let's say offices are understaffed uh, let's say it's a regular patient well you know it you know we we need the nurse in here to do this other we need the tech over here to do this other thing um, if the tech is out sick, I mean, there's all sorts of all sorts of reasons, and, and certainly Dr. Nasser, having been at any and, and a lot of doctors rather, would you know, are they in a position of power? I don't know that a lot of techs would would argue if they're like, oh, you know, take a long lunch. I just have this one patient left. It's totally fine. Um, you know, it's, they this is their boss. You know, I don't know that they're gonna that they're gonna argue and insist on being there in the room or even think twice about it, because you know they they trust this this person just as much as the as the girls did. I know there's a lot of information about the case, and and I'm gonna link a couple of articles to 
the the post for the the podcast but um i just wanted to to hit at this i don't think we've talked about this in the past um there's there's myths when someone is assaulted immediately that if you take a, a shower or if you change clothes or something like that that suddenly uh, all evidence is gone um that, let's say that that someone was uh, in that time period where he was um molesting them they brought it to the attention and actually filed a report or had a forensic nurse uh, check them, would there be a way to, to verify the what happened? Because he, all of his penetration, I believe all of his penetration was um, with his hands and he like would grope their breasts and that sort of thing. There, you're not going to find uh, DNA like you would in a, you know, if it was, you know, with his penis, if he had ejaculated, uh, which a lot of perpetrators do. So that's one of the many things that they're looking for in a rape kit is, is that sort of DNA. So they're not, they're not going to see that in there. Uh, another thing that they're looking for in a rape kit, especially um, in a forensic rape kit, so that's going to be used for an investigation or something, uh, is, you know, are marks, contusions, bruises, scratches, cuts, anything like that, that indicate that this was not consensual. Uh, some of these things could still happen, you know, in, with, a consen- with consensual sexual contact. Uh, some people enjoy, like, rougher sex or that sort of thing. But considering these are kids, and if he, if he left marks, that would, you know, raise some eyebrows. The thing is, a lot of, of sexual assaults, and, and it sounds like it's the case here as well, they're not, they're not, force there's not that physical force of someone you know you're not the person's not tied down held down against their you know it's not that whole thing it's you know using manipulation and and lying uh about what you know what you're doing and oh no this isn't it's fine this isn't you know a big deal i do this with everybody this is a totally normal thing so you're not going to see those things that you wouldn't a rape kit uh you're not going to see the things that you that most people are like looking for that would indicate hey this this wasn't a consensual, you know, this probably wasn't a consensual uh, sexual activity. The other thing having to do with the myth is I hear this all the time, um, and sometimes from police officers, which is disheartening, that you can only have a rape kit, you know, immediately after. Like you said, once you, once you shower, nope, there's no point in getting the rape kit. No, 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 no. Always, if, if you can and if you, if you feel okay with it uh, as a survivor, get, get the rape kit done, even if you don't want to, you know, call the police right now. You're like not sure if you want to do an investigation. As soon as you can afterward, go and get the go and get a rape kit. Um, if if you don't want to investigate, that's totally fine. You're not forced to file. You can get a rape kit without without filing a police report or, or anything like that. Um, but just because you took a shower doesn't mean like the the cuts and the contusions aren't gonna aren't gonna go away in a shower. Depending on like the thorough the thoroughness of the shower, all the DNA you know might might not be gone either. Uh, there are other things that people don't really consider. Maybe um, skin, you know, the, the perpetrator's skin under fingernails or like DNA in other places, uh, hair, like, you know, anything that could, like, okay, yes, this person, you know, was in an intimate situation, um, possibly sexual activity with, you know, with this other person. And, you know, based on the contusions and everything, it, it seemed like it was pretty forceful or, you know, it seemed like there was... Um, like a something used, like a let's say like a pipe or you know some some sort of utensil, uh, quote unquote utensil used. So it's you know even there's there's the thing of okay you need to go in the first 72 hours. That's when it's most you're most likely to collect that DNA. But even if it's after 72 hours, it, it's not like at that 72nd hour it's you know all the DNA disappears. It just kind of degrades. But just you know, just in case they can find something, it's it's good to to go and get a rape kit again if you if you feel comfortable doing so, if if you're able to. Um, definitely, I'm going to shame people that that don't uh, you know get get rape kits done. Are you familiar with the politician that said on the radio that um, the good old days everybody knew what rape was, and now anything is rape, and and people are over inflating the the issue? Alex Marlowe, he's the, yeah, he's the editor in chief of Breitbart. Yeah, he said that the the, de- the very definition of rape has changed. In the good old days, you know, we all knew what it meant. Um, and then now we don't even know what it means. We don't know what's credible and what's not. Now everyone's going to come forward. 
um, really it's become any sex that a woman ends up regretting that she had becomes rape. That's, that's more or less what he said, yeah. I feel that people who either feel that men are under attack or that all their favorite uh, politicians and famous people are, are being maligned and stuff like that, they go on immediate um, defense mode. But that's why I believe the Larry Nassar case is so uh, such a breakthrough because you have a case where someone gets um, a maximum sentence and they could say that having a woman judge had a lot to do with it, but I see it as a positive thing that finally uh, you have someone who actually hurt the women and took them seriously. So what do you see in this case that is different and what is um, revolutionary about uh, the way that this went about? So I'll start with what's what's different from this case and a lot of cases that uh, that we see like every day. So one of the things is the sheer number of people that came forward, uh, over 150 girls and women. We we rarely see that. Uh, perpetrators, you know, rapists are often like multiple offenders. So they 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 don't typically uh, sexually assault one time one woman one time. So if if let's say there was a truth serum or something, uh, there would be most likely, you know, there would be a, a number of women, uh, you know, that a, that a person, you know, that her rapist has, has assaulted. It wouldn't be just like one person one time. Uh, so, so the number makes it a little hard to, uh, the, the number of people coming forward and that their stories uh, are very similar makes it harder to refute that. It's a lot easier to say, oh, well, no, this one person regretted this sex one time or, you know, but if you have 150, it's a little harder. Uh, another thing is that, you know, even let's say we we take like the Cosby case or uh, Donald Trump. You know, they have you know, over a dozen women each that have accused them of sexual assault. The difference there has to do with with power. So that's that's the second difference to me. The first one is the number of of people coming forward, and the second has to do with who has the power in the situation. We've all heard of Bill Cosby, even before all of this. We've all heard of, heard of Donald Trump before all of the allegations. Uh, we had not heard of any of those women before, so it's a lot easier to dismiss. Oh no, I love I love Bill Cosby. He seems so nice and down to earth, and you know he was a father figure. All of this stuff. I don't even know her. Like, well, she's just trying to get famous. That's different from this situation because outside of like like Olympians or super fans of the Olympics. Not a whole lot of people knew who Dr. Nasser was. I didn't know him by name. You know, a lot of people didn't. But what they did know are these are some of these gymnasts, the ones that that won gold. Um, what is it? Two Olympics ago, held uh, the ones that won gold, won you know, or maybe silver, uh, won Olympics. You know, ago you have Simone Biles, you have uh, Michaela Maroney, you have oh, I'm blanking on her name right now, but she gave a really really powerful speech. Ali. Ali Reisman, you have these people that, okay, yeah, they, they, this was, they had some nickname, I can't remember what it was, but, you know, these are, these are our girls that we all rooted for, and we all knew their names, and, you know, some of their, their background, and, and their, you know, families, and all, we saw them cheering, and all of this stuff, and so we, people automatically have a, a connection to them more so than they do, you know, for Dr. Nasser. Thirdly, um, you know, has to do with them being minors. So even even the w- young women who are adults now at the time were were underage. Typically, not always, but typically people are more sympathetic to something happening to kids than than women. So, you know, we see this in a lot of different ways. Uh, people talk about, you know, pedophiles, oh, they're irredeemable, they should have life in prison, they should have the death penalty, you know, all of these, like, really strong terms against pedophiles. How could you do this to a child? We, with with rapists, it's, well, okay, let's get the whole story, what's, what really happened, da, 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 da. But, You know, we see kids as innocent, and we're much less likely to see uh, adult women as, you know, innocent in this, you know, in, in the sexual encounter, regardless of what it looks like. In the sentencing and the judge, um, I know that Larry Nassar actually attacked the judge and said that she was just trying to get some camera time and that um, that she was too harsh with him. Like, is that another typical uh, response from accused accused abusers that they try to 
downplay and and to attack the people who are actually trying to bring justice? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's typically not the the first thing that they'll do because it's not typically successful. Uh, if a judge is determining a sentencing, like in this case, if, if for any for any crime, if a judge is you know, sentencing me to something, I'm going to be really nice and really kind and I'm not going to, you know, be nasty or accusatory or anything uh, until it already looks like things are going to go south. So that's typically one of the, you know, south for me. So that's typically one of the, the later, you know, responses to that. Um, but that's, I mean, having the, the perpetrator or the people who, you know, are, are defending the perpetrator attack the credibility of of the 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 survivors is very very common having them you know minimize what happened having them try to normalize what happened well i mean everybody does the you know maybe not this exact thing but y'all are misunderstanding you're making a big deal out of out of nothing it was routine like that sort of minimization is is absolutely normal and and i have seen and heard of uh perpetrators you know being making snide remarks uh, to you know, to the judge or to the the you know other not the defense attorney but the the prosecutor, um, you know, kind of just out of out of meanness, out of out of spite because it's not going their way and and it's it's a defense you know it's a defense mechanism. It's not usually successful, but I mean in this case he he tried to attack her credibility with her you know by like her gender and and it didn't really work out for him is having more women as judges and advocates and attorneys um one of the ways to to bring about a different outcome um you know people don't want to think that, that the system is sexist they don't want to think that it's racist or that it's prejudicial against um people who are vulnerable um when when we see different outcomes when there's different types of people uh, judging or partaking of that, it makes you wonder if that's actually true. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, people may not want to to think that, that it's true, but the system is absolutely biased. I mean, we, we all, to some degree, have a level of bias. And so when you have a system set up that, you know, is mainly, let's say, you know, made up of men or made up of white people or made up of Christians, you know, any, any dominant group, any particular group, it's going to, it's going to be biased towards, you know, towards those, those individuals, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of inescapable, not totally, but you know, it, it's very, very common. I'll put it that way. So by having more female judges, that's, I think a step in the right direction. It won't, it won't fix the problem. Uh, just like how having more, like judges of color wouldn't fix the problem of, you know, a lot of, you know, most of the judges being white. Uh, because there are still, there are women who out there who, you know, are, are biased against women because it's, it, it talks, it's about our greater like culture that says, you know, what's true and what's not about, about women and men and have, you know, holds all of these myths. So women are also a product of that, of that culture, uh, sometimes more so than, than men are. So I think it has to do with who is on the bench, who the prosecutors are, who the police officers are, the detectives, all of these people. But it also has to do with, with what they, you know, what they know about, in this case, uh, sexual violence, versus what they what they think they know but are really myths. So I think it's more education and more representation uh, that, you know, we'll see. You know, if, if those were to happen, then there would be more. I think there would be tougher, tougher sentences, and and more rapists would get. Well, it would it would even go to, go to court. You know, three percent right now of, of, uh, rape charges even make it, you know, to, to court. You know, even pressing charges and, and the whole shebang, uh, to sentencing. So, three percent is is dismal. It's it's unacceptable, and so. Yeah, if we if we increase representation, you know, for the professionals that are in all of the steps that get there, not just judges, I think we would see a change. But also, we need to make sure that those people are are educated about about the law and also about 
you know, socialization and what consent is and manipulation, neurobiology, um, whenever it comes to how people react during trauma, you know, all of this, all of these different things, that would bring, bring about like real change and would help, you know, not just in the sentencing of, of rapists, but also in the prevention, you know, of, of rape in the first place. Uh, last myth to debunk, um, is there is, it, is there any truth that that women would be more lenient and more forgiving? Because that's what the conservative uh, community usually says, that if you have a, a female judge or a liberal judge, that they're going to let every fiend out and that the world's going to be worse. Um, have you seen that? or? So this reminds me of like when, when people talk about a female president. I wouldn't want a female up there with the nuclear button because what if she's on her period and PMSing? And no, these are, these are myths. Uh, it has to do with, with people thinking of women as, as less professional, as less adult, as incapable. Uh, no, I, I don't believe, and there's no research to back that, that, you know, if we had more female judges, they would be letting people go left and right. They wouldn't imprison anyone. Uh, no, that's it's just simply not true. It, it goes back to the myth that you know women are are very emotional and and hysterical, and there's a lot of there's a lot of history behind you know that word and a lot of history and and gender bias uh, behind the the idea that you know, women are just very emotional, whereas men are more intellectual, men are more reasonable, women act unreasonably. So it's it's absolutely a myth. There's no there's no credit. You know, there's, there's, it's not credible. Um, and I think kind of that the opposite would happen. Not, you know, I'm not saying that women are more tough and would automatically give harsher sentences, not that, but that just like we've seen in the, in the case of Dr. Nasser, when it comes to sexual violence, much sexual violence is, is still gendered. You know, yes, women can, can rape men, men can rape men, women can rape women. Like it's not, you know, black and as black and white as that. But for the most part, it's still gendered violence. Most rape survivors are, you know, are women. Most rapists are men. And so if we were to see more, you know, female prosecutors, more judges uh, in, like, you know, overseeing these cases, I think the, the sentences would be more fair. Honestly, I think that they would be, like, longer sentences, uh, more fair to the survivor. You know, that is not to the, not to the rapist, the perpetrator. Um, because women know, we all know uh, someone who's been assaulted if we're not ourselves someone who has been assaulted or abused. So you can't have, you know, one in six women in the U.S. having, you know, been, been sexually assaulted and not know, um, you know, what that's like and not, not held someone's hand after they've been assaulted, not taken someone to the hospital, not you know, had that, had that experience, not, not feared being raped, even if you aren't a survivor yourself. Uh, so I think that would, you know, bring a dose of reality to the bench, honestly. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we appreciate um, several people from the Houston Area Women's Center being available to be on the show. And we'll be uh, discussing other uh, topics uh, in relation to uh, the rights, the in, in ways to support uh, survivors of different types of abuse. Uh, so, again, I want to thank you for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I, it might sound strange, but I love talking about this, about this stuff. I love, you know, getting, spreading the knowledge and getting, you know, more awareness out there. So thank you.